Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a tremendous chapter of Scripture. Really looking forward to going through 1 Corinthians 15 for the next few weeks. And I I believe it's going to be a a real encouragement to you. I mean, in reality, the resurrection is the bodily resurrection and Christ's resurrection is the foundation on which Christianity stands, which I'll be saying several times today. But this this is a great chapter. However, remember that this chapter is in a book called 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is the trouble. And what do I mean by that? church at Corinth was not a model church by any stretch of the imagination. In, in reality, you could take the, the book of 1 Corinthians and you could outline it this way. Problem number one, chapter two, problem number two, problem number three, etc., etc., etc. That's literally the way that you could outline the book. Paul addresses, think about what he addresses. He addresses divisions uh, disputes in the church, gross immorality, lawsuits against believers, marriage and um, purity, food offered to idols, self-centered and disorderly worship. And that takes us through the first 11 chapters. And so now we get to chapter number 15, and it's a glorious chapter, but it's there in this, past, in this book because there were some in the church who denied the bodily resurrection of believers. Each of the problems, in each of the problems that Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians, he reminds them of the gospel again and again and again. Their problems and their ethical questions and their doctrinal disputes were the result of failing in one way or another, to either believe or to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And dare I say, the problems that we have, disputes that we have, the issues that we have, are in one way or another a failure to believe or to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives. Now here's what the people in in Corinth were saying. You ready? It's found in verse number 12. They were saying, look, dead people do not, cannot, and will not rise again. Now, what they were not saying, and this is what we have to understand, what they weren't saying is this, that when a believer dies, his or or her soul ceases to exist. They weren't saying that. They weren't saying when a believer dies, their soul will not be with God in heaven. They weren't saying that. They had no problem with the immortality of the soul. But Paul had a real problem with that. And the reason is that he sees an inseparable connection between the believer's resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. It's inseparable. And so uh, to deny the resurrection of believers was to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And to deny the resurrection of Jesus was to deny the very heart of the gospel, right? So with that as an introduction, let's stand and we'll read uh, 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. By the way, let me back up. 
notice very clear divisions. I'm going to read it fast, but notice what he says about the gospel itself. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you as of first importance. By the way, this he gives he tells them of the gospel. Now he's going to define the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, he's defining it right now. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Why, Paul, are you unworthy to be called an apostle? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Lord, I thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture there's so much that we could say here. It's so rich with truth, and, it's, and we're going to see that the implications are so encouraging to us. But I pray, Lord, that we will, number one, seriously think about how the gospel relates to our um, God and us. Number two, that we will see how that the gospel relates to our everyday life. And Lord, may you um, press in our hearts the desire to proclaim the good news of the gospel as well. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. So Paul spends the, the whole of chapter number 15 uh, defending the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. But he begins with the resurrection of Jesus and the central role it plays in the gospel. In, in the 11 verses that we just read, uh, Paul poses to us this assertion. You ready? If you're a Christian, then at the core of your faith stands the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying in this chapter. That's the very core of your faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you have uh, one but not the other, then you don't have Christian hope and Christian faith. That's the core. His defense of the resurrection we're going to see uh, it falls along three lines and highlights three characteristics that we're going to cover today in, in, in this passage. Number one, he says that the gospel is God's saving message. Look at verse number one again. Now, I would remind you, brothers. Did you like what he said? I would remind you. As I said already, he's reminded them of the gospel we need to be reminded of the gospel, don't we? I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. The Apostle Paul, like any faithful preacher, is in the reminding business. That's my job. I'm in the reminding business. 
the bulk of what I do in teaching and preaching is to remind you. Sometimes I hear people say, yeah, the, the pastor, he never says anything new. Good. That's my job. I don't say anything new. I just remind you of what Scripture says. The bulk of what I do is to remind. I am responsible to teach and preach truths as they are laid out in Scripture and nothing else. My job is not to give you my opinion. My job is not to address the, the current political climate. My job is not to be relevant to the culture. My, the most relevant thing I can do is to preach in such a way that it draws your love to Jesus Christ and it draws your desire to personal holiness and to live for him. If I do that, and you're, I'm preparing you for eternity, then I'm more relevant than everything going on 70 miles north of here. But pastors just don't say something once. And the reason for that is that sin draws our heart, our thoughts, and our affections away from the gospel, doesn't it? All the time. We can easily become twisted in our thinking. And that's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. False teachers had diverted their thinking from the simplicity of the gospel. How many of you have ever shared the gospel? Okay, good. Everybody, almost everybody raised their hand. That's good. Have you ever, does it ever strike you when you're sharing the gospel how simple it is? But that's all it takes, the simple presentation of the gospel. God does all the work. And he gets all the glory for the work that he does by our simple presentation of the gospel. Now, notice what he says about this gospel message. First of all, there's a preaching side. He says the gospel is intended for public consumption. The calling of the church, the calling of every individual that makes up the church is to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot get away from that. That is the message that should be on your tongue all the time. Jesus saves. The point is so important that Paul not only begins with this emphasis, but he concludes the first section with the emphasis. Look, verse number 11, look at it. What does he say? Whether then it was I or they. Who's they? All those other apostles and all those other people. So we preach and so you what? Believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the simple gospel. Profound, simple and profound, all at the same time. Believe that and you shall be saved. And our job is to proclaim that gospel. But then he says there's a second thing. There's a believing side to it, a receiving side. And so um, that whether you call it receiving or believing, uh, receiving the gospel is believing the gospel. And Paul describes the Corinthians' faith in three ways. He says they received the message, they accepted it as true, and they placed their trust in it. The gospel message isn't some entertainment. I'm not up here to entertain you. Lucky you. I'm not up here. The gospel message is not philosophy. It's a message that you heartily embrace with your mind and your will, your emotions and your desires. That's the gospel message. You cling to Christ in this message because you know how much you need the gospel, don't you? 
I was reflecting on that on the way home. Um, Murray Parish's uh, uh, memorial service yesterday. On the way home, I was thinking about the fact that there's only the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation teaches there's only a remnant that are saved. Only a remnant. And of all the billions of people that are in the world today, I am part of that remnant. Praise be to God for the gospel message, right? If that doesn't excite you, you're dead spiritually or dying spiritually, right? Number three, they stood in the gospel on which you stand. That's your foundation. The foundation of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You stand on it when you stand before God. You're standing on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have nothing to fear, right? Wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And then number four, they're being saved. Look at verse number two. It sounds a bit peculiar. Look at what he says in verse two. And by which you are being saved, how? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, that sounds an awful lot like some sort of a work salvation, doesn't it? Be honest. It, you can misinterpret it that way. And I'm going to unpack this for a while because this is a very important point. If you are a Christian, then you are being saved. You're being saved from the power of sin, aren't you? You are being sanctified. And it is through the gospel and only through the gospel that the Corinthians are, were delivered from the wrath of God. And they must cling tenaciously to that message which Paul has preached and which they have received. There can be no deliverance from sin without holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since the gospel is proclamation of the facts regarding Christ dying for our sins, rising again from the dead, those who are truly Christ will receive this warning. One of the richest teachings of Scripture and one of the richest teachings of the Reformation was the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. That's what Scripture teaches. Perseverance of the saints. It's right here in this passage. But today, the rich teaching of Scripture and of the Reformation has been diluted to a phrase. You know what that phrase is? Once saved, always saved. And while that sounds biblical, and it sounds good, on the surface it sounds really good, the problem is with the way it is applied. Listen very carefully so you don't hear something I don't say, okay? The way it is applied is like this. Grandma has a grandson named Johnny who she took to uh, VBS when he was eight years old, and he made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and he's now an adult and has not seen a church since the last wedding he went to. And she says, I know Johnny is going to heaven because he prayed a prayer in VBS, once saved, always saved. And that is exactly 
not what Scripture teaches. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture. Christians must persevere to the end to be saved. This is clear teaching of Christ. Think about this. Do you remember the parable of the soils? Remember that? And the one soil, the rocky ground soil, the plant comes up, the heat comes out, the plant dies. Why did it die? The roots weren't deep enough. Jesus, when he interpreted the rocky ground soil, said this in Matthew 13. Yet he has no root of himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This it describes a person who was never saved. This is neither once saved, always saved, nor losing his salvation. It's neither one of those things. This is plain and simple, somebody who was never converted. Matter of fact, if you look, this is an aside, this is not in my sermon notes, but if you look at that parable very carefully, Jesus emphasizes that with joy he receives a message. Joy, and the joy that you see, and you've seen it, very emotional conversions. Whenever I see a very emotional conversion, I mark that person and say they won't be in a church in a couple months, and it's almost always true. Why? Most, lot, most of the time, their joy stems to the fact that they think that Christ is going to make their life better. You stick in whatever it happens to be, and they fall away when they realize, you know what? This is hard stuff here. This is not easy. In order to be saved, we must persevere. But you need to remember something. Perseverance, our perseverance, is based upon Christ's preservation of his own. Christ is the good shepherd. And he said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And what? No one will snatch them out of my hand. God's elect... Do persevere to the end because Christ perseveres, or I'm sorry, Christ preserves them to the end. Not one of his sheep will get away from his care. How do you know that somebody is, is God's elect? By the way, that's the term, that's not, I'm not using a term, a theological term. That's the term in almost every book that Paul writes, he says, to the elect. I'm just using a term that he uses to describe the saved. How do we know that somebody's elect? They persevere and they do not fall away. That's why Peter can exhort us, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and the election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Christ preserves his elect. I was talking to somebody just yesterday. We were talking about coming persecution. And we, he was saying, man, I hope I persevere when persecution comes, and I said, you know what? You don't have to worry about it, because if God has saved you, you will get the grace to persevere in persecution when that time comes and no earlier. But if you are in Christ, you will persevere because he will give you the grace to persevere through it. And so we are exhorted to persevere and we're exhorted to persevere because we know that he preserves us all at the same time. See how it works? That's far different truth than once saved, always saved. 
It's much deeper, much richer, and much more Christ-glorifying. Often here, uh, people who turn from the faith because of the sin of other Christians. You ever heard that? Yeah, so-and-so did this to them, so they, they left the church. Or they had some sort of tragedy, and they left the church. And, and then in the same conversation, I hear that person bemoan, the, uh, bemoan it and, and blame the church. There weren't so many hypocrites in the church. If that person had been so sinful for them, they would have stayed if that church hadn't been so mean. No, no, no. That person left the church because they were never in the church to begin with. They didn't persevere because Christ hadn't preserved them. They were not a convert. That's the clear and plain teaching of Scripture. And what's the takeaway for us? What's the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is you don't have to be publicly antagonistic to the gospel to turn away from Christ. All you have to do is stop believing. You can continue to attend church, go through the motions. You can continue to lead an upright life, remain faithful to your spouse, conduct your business with integrity. But if your heart is not firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, then you are in grave danger of falling away forever. And the gospel message is God's saving message, and you must receive it with a living and abiding, a remaining faith. That's the proof of your salvation. And again, Christ is the one who preserves a person. And so Christ gets the glory for it. Number two, not only is the gospel um, God's saving message. God, the gospel is God's primary message. Look at verse number three. Now he just talked about the gospel, and now he's going to describe the gospel, and he says, for, so he's connecting the first two verses to what's following, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. And so he's delivering a message that he himself has received. He didn't invent this message. He's not an, invent, an innovator of doctrine. What he received from the Lord Jesus, from the other apostles who have been with Jesus, or what he learned from the pages of Scripture, he passed on to the churches that he served. And of all the vastness, think about this. I was thinking about this this week. Of all the vastness and richness of Scripture, one thing took pride of place for the Apostle Paul, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel message has four primary elements. What are they? The gospel is laid out, and it's here, and each element begins with the word that. If you want to know the argument, follow the arguments. Number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. Okay? Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Put yourself in the place of a faithful Israelite for just a minute. And you're, you're headed into, let's just say, Passover time. Okay, It could be any other offering, but it's Passover time. You arrive with an unblemished lamb. You take your hand and you place it on the head of that lamb and you confess your sins. Then you take a knife and you slit the throat of that little lamb and watch as its body shakes and quivers as it bled out and dies at your feet. 
And as you look down at the carcass, lifeless and still, you can say this, it, this could have been me. My sins deserve death. In fact, it should have been me, but this little lamb took my place. And so when Paul writes, Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, he takes our heads into his, I'm sorry, I messed that up. He takes our heads in his hands, as it were, and he turns our face to Calvary and he shows us himself. And there Jesus hung, bleeding for us. Paul then points to that son and says, that should have been you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. He died for our sins to take the punishment that we deserved. Secondly, Christ was buried. Why does Paul think it, it's necessary to add that middle element to the gospel? Why does he have to add that he was buried between the death and the resurrection? Well, the death of Jesus is a key component of the message because it's proof positive that he actually died. The soul of Jesus parted his body. It was a real and physical death like any person experiences who passes away. And so he was buried. And then the third element, he rose again the third day, right? The resurrection, what was it? It was a great vindication of Christ's work. To the naked eye, Christ merely died like every other criminal crucified, right? Just every other crucified criminal. The resurrection, however, serves to attest that his death for our sins was successful. He triumphed over death, amen? And he triumphed over the powers of sin and hell. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the, one of the greatest theological works, by the way, that, that uh, talks about the resurrection, and one of the greatest theological works of the Puritan era was John Owen's treatise, on the atonement. And you know what the title of the, this, his uh, treatise on the atonement is? The death of death of Christ. I'm sorry, the death of death in the death of Christ. I knew I'd mess that up. Why they write those titles, I don't ever know. <laughs> the resurrection is the assurance of that victory. When we celebrate Easter like we did just last week, we celebrate the fact that death has died. This is all in accordance with scriptures. His resurrection was, pre was uh, preached in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into that. Let's go to number four. The fourth element of the gospel message is this, that he had many post-resurrection appearances, right? That's, that's the fourth element. All the post-resurrection appearances. These serve to prove that the gospel message is indeed verifiable. It's very likely that the people who had seen Jesus before and after the crucifixion 
were well known to the early church. When you, if you were one of them, don't you think people would want to talk to you about it? How different did he look after the resurrection than before? Did he talk the same? What was it like? What were you thinking the first time you saw Jesus after his resurrection? Wouldn't they be well known? Wouldn't you want to ask them that? I know I would. Thinking about Mary Magdalene last week that we preached about. Mary, what went through your mind when you realized that was the Lord Jesus? What was going through your mind before? And so they were well known. And so, in fact, Paul is saying this. These witnesses are well known. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Just go ask them. The resurrection is clearly a factual event. Paul appeals to those with knowledge of it. And it's because they had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. You know, have you ever thought about the fact there's all these liberal theories about Jesus, the swoon theory, right? Uh, And all these other theories about Jesus didn't actually die or his body was stolen. But think about something. The Jews hated Jesus. The Romans would have done anything they could to stop Christianity. And all they had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks was what? Produce a body. It makes no sense that the Jews stole the body or that the Romans stole the body because they don't want Christianity to go on. They just had to produce a corpse. And they couldn't because Jesus was alive. It's a well-attested fact. The Jewish authorities instead called Jesus a magician and a deceiver. That's all they had. You ever look at somebody and say, that's all you got? That's all you got, magician, deceiver? So to verify his message, Paul begins with Cephas, or Peter, right? And the twelve. Peter saw the risen Lord as did the rest of the disciples. Jesus appeared to them several times. In addition, Paul lists four more appearances of the Lord to uh, emphasize that his message was verifiable. Look at what he says. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Don't know where that was. It was probably up in Galilee. Um, Now, I won't go into the reason why the sermon's long enough as it is, but there's a reason why it would be in Galilee. It has to do with political issues and not... um, any other reason. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So uh, the resurrection was not hearsay. He appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was uh, in his earthly ministry before his crucifixion and before his resurrection. But afterwards, he not only became a believer, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The reference to all the apostles, because it says the twelve and then to all the, all the apostles, that would be more than the twelve. There were, there were quite a few people called apostles. Did you know that? Did you know there's more than that? There's uh, Matthias, the replacement for Judas. There's Barnabas, is called an apostle. James is called an apostle, Epaphroditus, and then there's a group called Our Brothers that are apostles as well. Remember, apostle simply means a sent one, a messenger. Then verse number 8, look at verse number 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. 
This was his conversion on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes him an apostle. It appears that Paul's conversion didn't happen until several years after Christ's ascension. And by saying last of all, he's saying, look, there's been no more post-resurrection appearances of Jesus on earth. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-supported facts of history. There's another thing about the gospel, and that is the last thing. The gospel is God's gracious message. Personal reference in verse number 8 prompts Paul to think of his own conversion and subsequent ministry. And this is what he says about it. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Think about this. Think about how he, he summarizes his whole life work in this. I am the least of the apostles. And why does he call himself the least? He leaves it out right here. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. He still, he is overwhelmed by the graciousness of God. This man who once persecuted the church of God, this humble man became the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. It's all because of the grace of God. And so he mentions grace three different times in these verses. And, and by noting them, you can see the powerful effects of grace on a Christian's life. Number one, grace lowers the estimation that we have of ourselves. Paul sees himself as the least of the apostles, not only untimely born, but unworthy to be numbered with a group of men because he, he persecuted the church. And by remembering what he had been, he kept himself humble before the Lord and the others. You ever keep that in your remembrance? You ever keep remembering who you were before? That keeps us humble, doesn't it? When we puff ourselves up with pride, we have forgotten the gospel grace. I I remind parents all the time, look, if your children turn out right, it has... It has not very much to do with you. Because if it were up to you, your kids would be warped. Most of the reason your kids turn out right is because of the abundant grace of Jesus Christ in helping you help them turn out right. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. You and I build ourselves up in our own eyes when we forget the pit of sin and despair from which Jesus rescued us. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a man in history who, who kept that in mind. His name was George Whitfield. You ever heard of George Whitfield? He was possibly the most celebrated preacher of the 18th century, the colonial era of the United States. He was English, but he spent a lot of time in the United States, or the colonies at that time, I should say, the colonies. His eloquence was legend. His voice was so strong that he, he could speak to 20,000 people with no amplification. If you were to cut my mic right now, uh, you in the corners would have a hard time hearing me, and I'm a loudmouth. George Whitfield was able to preach that many people. Benjamin Franklin, although he believed nothing of what George Whitfield said, he loved to hear him preach. We might even call him the first celebrity preacher. He was so celebrated 
Thousands upon thousands of people flocked to hear George Whitfield speak. But Whitfield was a man of great grace, and he knew his own sin, and he knew God's wondrous grace. And so this is what he wrote. Listen to what he said about himself. Let the name Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. That is the attitude of somebody who knows who they are in Jesus Christ. Grace humbles us by reminding us that we are less than the least. Secondly, grace not only humbles us in our own estimation, it exalts the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul saw himself as nothing, but he was a believer. He was an apostle. He was a preacher of the gospel, and he was all these things by the grace of God. Everything that Paul was, everything that he accomplished, every gift he possessed, he attributed to the sheer goodness of God's mercy. And this is a testimony of every child of God. When you realize and meditate on the gospel and who you were before and who you are after, you magnify the transforming power of Jesus Christ because everything you have, everything you are, and everything you will attain is all because of God's grace. And then third, this grace, it energizes the service that we render to Christ. Look at the rest of it. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Look, Paul's not sitting back. No, he worked harder than any of the other apostles. He's not bragging here. He's stating a fact. He worked harder than all the other apostles, but even the strenuous work of this brilliant mind. Paul had a brilliant mind. The effort that he put in day after day after day was fueled by God's grace. And that is the power that energizes our service. And when I say energize, I don't mean give you the energy to go through. I'm saying the service that you render only is activated because of his spirit. So when we have children's church, in the next service, that teaching is energized by God's grace. When you uh, serve an elderly person, when you go visit the sick, when you go, when you witness, all of this is energized by the by the God who made all things possible. You know, Christian service happens this way. I don't know about you, but when I meditate on this. I was laying in bed last night thinking, Lord, how can I do more for you? How can I do more? It reminds me of a story I heard of, of a child going to her father and asking, Daddy, may I please have $10? Why does a little girl like you want all that money? Father asked. Daddy, I want to buy you a, a birthday present. What does that father do? 
he pulls out his wallet so his little girl can serve and buy him a present. And we look at Christ and we're all struck by what he did. And we say, God, I want to serve you. And we can do nothing. And he takes our meager efforts and he builds his kingdom through them. Does that not overwhelm you? Who am I? Who am I that God allows me to tell people about Christ? Who am I that he lets me stand up here and proclaim the word of God? And I'm sure you ask the same question of yourself, don't you? If you really know the grace of God in your life. It energizes. That little girl had no resources of her own. And it's just like us. We have no resources of our own, but we want to serve our Heavenly Father. How on earth can we do it? It's only through the grace of our Heavenly Father who delights to give us that grace, just like that father delights to give his little girl that $10. And that is the gospel message. It never changes. The message is, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. The gospel message is the foundation of all of our hopes for forgiveness, for salvation, from freedom, from guilt and shame, freedom from the bondage of sin. And that same message is the foundation of our hope that we too one day will rise. Amen. I want to go back real quick, thinking about verse 1 and verse number 11. Remember what Paul said? Verse number 11, he said this. He said, when I get back to it, I'm sorry. He said, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. Let me ask you a question. Are you preaching? This is the message that we are to to proclaim. We are called to make disciples, aren't we? We are called to preach this message. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It's the greatest message in the history of the world. Since God called you to proclaim that message, have you made active plans to share it with someone? Do you think that way? How can I share with people? I typically, I don't cold call evangelize. I do occasionally, but that's not normally how I work. I work through relationships. And everybody I come in contact with, whether it's a cashier or whoever else, that I see on a regular basis, I'm thinking, how can I get the gospel to them? Just this week, I realized that somebody I, I have contact with on a fairly regular basis I now have gotten the, the I, I look for, for pathways to, to talk to people. I now have it. Next time I see this person, I'm already praying, Lord, help me to share the gospel with them and help them to have a receiving heart. Is that the way you think? 
Because we are called to share the gospel, to proclaim that gospel. We have the greatest news of all time. You do not have to die forever. You can live for eternity with Jesus. Why? Because he arose. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. It's, it is such a simple message, but it's profound. Lord, I, I want to confess that we do not preach the message like we should. We do not tell people like we should. We don't plan like we should. I pray, Lord, that you will put it in our heart how and who and when. And then we'll proclaim the message. Lord, there's great joy in sharing the message whether somebody receives it or not. And I pray that this will be a pleasing characteristic of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.